the short version of it was we had The Rock in it, which at that time was, of course, the biggest star WWE had. He's large in uh, in many ways. He's yeah. large in, in, in terms of size. He's large in terms of his aura is just unbelievable. He was the, one of the main reasons WWE didn't want to come. He wasn't comfortable traveling. So in one of those Nate Light, Nate Light phone calls with, with the WWE executives, I sort of alluded to that he may be a bit of a chicken or whatever. Well, I didn't say that to him, to him. but the message got to him. I have no idea how. He gets back to the hotel and I get in the elevator and he comes out, right? And I'm, of course, introduced myself. I'm Marcus Lure, I'm the promoter of the tour. It doesn't matter what your name is. And he goes, I've been looking for you. I swear, with the eyebrow going up, the whole thing. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get the elbow now. It's but obviously, he didn't look very happy, right? So he kind of said, well, I kind of heard what you said about me. When you come out and you insult the jabroni beating, pie-eating, trailblazing, eyebrow-raising from Los Angeles all the way to Japan, you're getting ready to get your monkey ass whipped by the rock. And I'm like, oh, shit. Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the CEO and founder of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival and the revolutionary event crowd, our new online events course. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. So if you want to hear more like this, make sure you subscribe, leave us a glowing review, and you can follow me on Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every single message. Despite rubbing world-famous man mountains up the wrong way, Marcus Lure has carved an incredible role for himself within the sports TV world. He's a proper sports entrepreneur. Through his business, he's worked on television deals from every sport, from football to golf and professional wrestling to tennis. His audience covers 3.5 billion people and he oversees $100 million agreements involving some of the biggest sporting brands in the world. This episode is filled with great stories and huge business. It's a fascinating insight behind the scenes of an industry we all love. Here is the eventful life of Mr. Marcus Lure. Where are you in the world right now? Absolutely. I'm calling in from Bangkok, Thailand. Lovely, 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 love, love that place. So well, let's, let's get cracking, Marcus. You've been in events and an entrepreneur for quite a few years now. Um, you're living out in, in Thailand. When was your first event that you put on? Yeah, actually, well, let's start. Um, when I first came to Asia, uh, which is in the end of 94, the company I ended up working for um, was uh, put me in charge of managing the Asian Basketball Confederation um or their marketing program so my first events in asia were basketball tournaments oh, wow. um, and the only thing i knew about basketball was watching the nba while i was studying in the u.s yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. you can imagine uh, everything i was doing had a certain nba flavor to it which wasn't really the fiba style of basketball in those days now that's 25 years more than 25 wow. years ago right so so you're um, so you're a you're a you're a, a german living in bangkok but studied in america yeah, right. So wow. that's right. My route came Germany, US, Asia. That's the, wow. that's the, and then I never left. Wow, wow, wow. And how long have you been living in Asia for now? Uh, over 25 years. I came here in 1994 after the Football World Cup, which was my first event. Yep. So I was an event manager at the FIFA World Cup in Dallas. How was that as a World Cup? I would imagine the Americans do a cracking job. And I remember watching it on telly, in fact, thinking, wow, they've really pumped a lot of money into this and really commercialized it for their country. Was that the same for you? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, uh, you know, it, it was my first World Cup I ever attended. So, uh, but it was right on the on the pitch side, not yeah. standing sitting in the spectator stand. Uh, it was incredible. I think the you know America knows how to run events. Number one, number two, they know how to commercialize it and market it. So even though football or what they call soccer there, of course, wasn't Nessie as popular as it is now. Um, but from a event and how they hyped it up was incredible. It was very, very successful for sure. Yeah. Wow. So, so then moving from moving from there from America, you went straight to Asia. What sports did you get involved in when you were in Asia? Uh, my next uh, trip was from Dallas to Hong Kong, um, and that's how I ended up in charge of the Asian Basketball Confederation marketing or commercial program. And so, now what that means in those days, it means are you in charge of everything? Right? You run the event, you find the sponsors, you you find the broadcasters, and, and everything in between, right? So. I ended up running events that in the in my very first year as that's really truly as a rookie here in uh, in Korea in Japan in the Philippines and in Malaysia and which are all very different markets of course I mean they are as diverse as you can find them if you would go do the same in Europe right um, and uh, and that was fun I mean I learned every lesson I made all every mistake you can make as a rookie uh, upsetting the local organizing <laughs> committees and <laughs> whatever you can do right love it and, and I'm really all, yeah, exactly it was yeah. it was sort of you know baptism by fire for sure uh, but it was fun and I, and I learned of course a ton of things so I did that for literally only about a year a year and a half and then uh Seamus O'Brien who was the the owner of the company had the next crazy idea and that was to launch the Asian PGA golf tour so I swung over to golf and then on the back of it pretty much the year after I think we launched the Asian PGA Tour, which was called the Omega Tour at that time, with 20 tournaments across Asia and about 10 or 12 in Southeast Asia. So at that time, I moved from Hong Kong to Malaysia and ended up then working in Asian golf um, and sort of did the same thing, right? Find find the venues, find a sponsor, put it together and God knows what, right? So those were all, I mean, again, just crash courses in, in how to run events in Asia or what to do and how to at least find some money to make these things somewhat work. You know, it doesn't mean that we're all commercially very successful yet, um, but we were building something for sure. That was the really early days before TSA ever even was uh, was and on my radar. Which TSA? Was, so TSA, which stands for Total Sports Asia, that's my business. It's been around now for 23 years. I started that in the later part of 1997. And uh, that was uh, an interesting uh, timing because that was when we had a financial crisis here in Asia, or it was just about starting, which obviously I timed very well <laughs> to start my business. <laughs> um, now, the first job or the first thing we wanted to do was we were trying to take over the Malaysian Football League, the, complete, the commercial rights of it. So it wasn't so much the event side of it. It was just the commercial side, buyout, sponsorship, and TV rights, and then you know resell it off to broadcasters and sponsors, etc. To break that down, the Malaysian Football League. How many teams are there in the league? Um, I have to admit, I can't quite remember at that time. I believe it must have been probably around twelve. Um, now they are twelve teams in the first division. Then you have another twelve teams plus in the second. So it's it, you know it's a well put together. Um, local league, um, not as big as the big Europeans, but you know at that time it was the, it was already the number one rated TV program in the market. Um, I, you know, we had done our homework. We we saw the numbers and we saw it was dramatically undervalued. Yeah. Um, we saw there was larger opportunities. So we went in there as a one dollar company and tried to buy this. Um, so that's that was sort of really how we how TSA got started. Um, it was well. It, it started and it didn't start because uh, you might have heard before already. I said that somewhere else before. We uh, we didn't really be able to pull it off. Um, the crisis got in the way. We had to drop the whole thing, 
Uh, and by the end of the day, we were sitting there with nothing uh, by the end of that year. This was the, you know, around December time in 1997. So, uh, but the idea was to be aggressive and buy these commercial rights. Um, what we then did, and to come back to, you know, what, what is the first events we did? So 1998 was the Commonwealth Games in Malaysia. Um, and we were a bit fortunate to then get in there. We were managing um, these couple of sponsorship programs for some of the bigger sponsors in the games uh, on the ground. So we were doing hospitality and running all this sort of usual fun stuff you do around these type of events, you know, leveraging, uh, helping them come up with ideas. And that all kicked off. That was really sort of the, the real first year of operation of TSA in 1998 at that time. As I said, end of the year was the was the Commonwealth Games then. And, and so by the end of that year, a year later, we, we had a business. Right? It wasn't anymore just a nice idea, yeah. <laughs> which, uh, but it, you know, we had a little office and we had a couple of people running around and, and people were coming to us and we're, we're doing stuff. And so then in 1999, then uh, again, you know, 21 years ago, we started the KL Marathon. So this is sort of a typical example of me who have all, I've always studied and I was always looking at what was happening around the world and, and how where things are growing there uh, and what can we do here in Asia, right? And so at that time, I, I saw at least, you know, how marathons around the world were growing like crazy, right? And, yeah. you know, not just Boston and New York and London, but, you know, it really was a big thing already. Well, Asia hadn't really, you know, uh, started there yet. Uh, it was still a bit of a, yeah, you know, a few thousand people running, but it was all very amateurly run. So I, fi I figured, hey, that's my space. We yeah, can run one of you. these things. We'll build a nice new franchise. Yeah, it was, it was, it sounded like a good idea. Yeah. So we got this baby started in 1999. We had a few sponsors. I think Malaysian Airlines became the title sponsor of it. Uh, but, you know, even if though, you know, we, we worked very hard on it and it ended up being a great event. We had probably on our first event, we had close to 10,000 people participating. It all looked great on paper. We lost, you know, some amount of money on it. Um, and we did another year and in year two. And then I kind of realized, you know what, we were at that time then doing a lot of TV business and other stuff. There was a lot of easier things to do yeah. than running these <laughs> damn events. <laughs> okay. The thing, the, thing is and, with the, know, the thing is with a marathon, though, there's no secondary spend. It's literally Correct. paying for you to go. They want to do. They want to do the marathon, but there's no secondary spend. There's no bars. There's no entertainment. There's nothing that goes with it. You're just dealing with sponsorship and people paying to go there. And I think that's, that's right. the difficulty in those kind of events. So moving on from from that event, did you feel like you were the pioneer of seeing opportunities coming into this world, which maybe they weren't as sharp as what you were visualizing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, we were, there was a, there was a hint, not even a handful. I mean, there was a couple of agencies like us out there, right? Of course, my previous agency, Seamus and what he was doing, but that was always very focused on Asian type of uh, events, right? Or Asian properties, right? Football, basketball, golf, et cetera. Uh, then you had a couple of guys like us, like me, um, again, maybe coming out of the UK or Australia, wherever they came from, and they were bringing in, let's call it international events, ATP tournaments or, or certain other things where you would take an international license to bring something into Asia. So I think we were all finding our own spaces yeah. um, and all our own regions, right? I mean, Asia is a large place, right? Yeah. So just because you know how to do it in Hong Kong, that doesn't mean you can automatically do it in Malaysia or Singapore. I mean, look, when we talk Asia, we most of the time don't refer to the Middle East. Although if you're talking Asian football as example, or, or the federations, they all, Middle East is part of Asia, right? So the AFC covers everyone. Um, otherwise, when I say Asia, I mean, starting up in Japan, coming all the way down to basically Indonesia, right? Um, and then on the left, uh, you would have the Indian subcontinent, right? So we're dealing with whatever, three and a half, 3.5 billion people roughly. So the way I would uh, 
separate them out. So you have North Asia, which is really, and, and I'm talking about over the 20 years, right? The most sophisticated markets there was Japan and Korea, of course. Yeah. They were already way ahead of the rest of the world to some degree. Then China was obviously 20 years ago starting to kick off, but you know, we're near of what it, what the giant it is now, right? For sure, China is yeah. the biggest out there, of course, now. The Indian subcontinent was always very cricket and, and obviously had its own sort of in its games, which, which, uh, which it was focused on. And then you have Southeast Asia, which is 650 million folks on its own as well, which are 10, 12 countries here. Wow. Yeah, so it's twice the size of Europe. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, so again, you have everything from Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines, and Indonesia, of course, as the largest here, Vietnam, and then smaller like this, Laos and, and so on, right? Cambodia. Yeah. So, that, so that's the blocks, right? Okay. That block is very much a football block. Right? Yeah. It's all about football, football, football. Yeah. China has a mixture of football and basketball. India, as I said, is very cricket. And then the North, the, the Japanese, the Koreans, they love their baseball, yeah. their football and basketball. Yeah. So you have very di- interesting dynamics in terms of sports, which you would look at yeah. when you look at these regions. So where did you see the opportunity then? When you saw this huge picture and thought, right, I've got to find a niche. Where did you see your niche? Yeah, so our niche was probably less focused on sports, yep. but first of all, we ended up, and again, this is sort of when, when people always talk about, you know, you make your luck or you get, you, you sometimes you are lucky with, with certain things. So how we ended up in, in the space, which made us a lot of money, as well as then got us into this sort of area was the TV world, right? So we had done a couple of smaller TV business deals in Malaysia um, without knowing we were making those IP owners already some decent money. Yeah. Um, and then they came back to say, okay, Marcus, what you did there in Malaysia, you know, how about doing this in a few other countries, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so that's how it really started um, that we that we ended up being WWE's main agent WWE um, in the media business. is the world wrestling. As in the entertainment group, entertainment. right? So, okay. And they used to be right, the WWF. So- Correct. Yeah. So when we were representing him, it was the WWF. And then I think somewhere in the middle of our deal with them, uh, they, they had to change the name because they lost a lawsuit against the World Wildlife Fund. Yeah, that's, that's the one. Um, so they had no choice. They had to change the name. Uh, it, was, it was, you know, sort of a bit of a messy you know, set up, as you can imagine at that time. But uh, so, yeah, so WWE came to us and they were making very little money here in Asia. And we didn't know that, of course, right, yeah. at, the, at the time. Um, we started making some decent money in in, in, a, in a couple of smaller markets, um, and they came to us eventually saying, "Look, can you do this for the whole region?" And, and we, you know, we we came up with a of course what we I can. thought was a of course we can exactly <laughs> like you would, right? Not that I not that I had done a single TV deal in Japan or India or China or wherever, but I go, yeah, no Love problem, it. bring Love it on. It. Exactly. <laughs> so we jumped really that like like a bit like how I started in Asia. We jumped right into the deep end without looking and checking the the height or of this thing. Um, and luckily in this case we got it right. Um, you know we were we did really well and in, in working out how to sell it to the Asian buyer, right? Yeah. The, the the broadcast uh, you know acquisition team. Uh, which again there are you know there were mostly older gentlemen, you know a couple of ladies here and there. Um, and WWE was just the most American weirdest thing ever. Right? Yeah. So this wasn't like, yeah, Marcus, come and talk to me. It's not like when you're selling the football World Cup yeah. or you know the Champions League. They didn't want to talk to me. Basically, I had to kind of force myself yeah. into these meetings Good. or use whatever tricks there is. Right? <laughs> um, so this wasn't like, oh yeah, I had the, I had the greatest product and that's how we sold it. It was the opposite. You know, they were making no money here, so every dollar we were generating was, was a additional dollar, straight to the bottom line. Love it. Right? And so we did a. We did 150 million US dollars worth of that in eight years. Um, so you, so you turned over. Stuff. You turned over 150 million US dollars 
for the WWE. Alone. Wow. Yes. And you Every take a per- and you take a percentage of that. That's right. It's a very yeah. good deal. That's the deal of the century, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> want a piece it of that. That was a deal of the decade. <laughs> yep. That was the deal of the of that decade for sure. Um, and here was the part which is really interesting. So, you know, ISL, remember ISL, the, the big boys uh, who existed in the early well, in the 80s, 90s, and they owned the TV, sorry, they owned the commercial rights to the Football World Cup, the Olympics. Um, you know, it was the largest yeah. agency outside of IMG in this space, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it was created by Adidas, the, the founder of Adidas, right? And so they had a small office in Hong Kong um, at that time. This was sort of, as I said, about 1999, 2000. Um, a year later, when bus sold, so that, that, but that has nothing to do with it. So anyway, ISL, as I said, represents the biggest brands in the world from as I, the IOC and FIFA. Uh, but a gentleman, which was an ex-colleague of mine, Charlie Charters, in Hong Kong at that time, he had a bit of a, an eye on ear for, for WWE, and he was you know, getting in there. He, he, he managed to get the, the rights to sell it. Um, and then his bosses basically told him, hey, you know what? We don't want to be associated to this American thing, <laughs> right? And I swear to God. I love it. And uh, and then so Charlie goes, okay, you know, so he's talking to the guys from, from WWE back in the States. And they're going, well, Charlie, okay, great. Now, we, we, you know, do you have anyone else? He goes, well, talk to Marcus. You know, he's a, he's a smart guy. He's, he's a young, ambitious group there. And, and I think they can help you. So that's how we then landed with this. And then ran away with 150 million dollars. <laughs> happy days, happy days. So that was over eight years, was it? Give me an example. Give me yeah, an example. That, I love this story. Give me an example of that first deal that you cut for that year one. How did what yes. did that look like? Twenty three thousand US dollars for thirteen episodes in Malaysia. Okay. It took us almost a year to do because WWE doesn't sell small deals. Yes. They only go. You buy fifty two episodes the whole year, or you buy nothing. Yeah. I only wanted to buy 13 episodes because I had a sponsor who wanted to put it on air, which at that time was a cigarette company called Winston. Yeah. And so I didn't want to buy 52. I said, I can't do it. I don't don't have the money for it. Too much headache. Yeah. Correct. So we, you know, we ended up eventually after a complete back and forth where ISL was initially our counterparty. They disappeared. Then they gave the rights to their video agency, the guy who sells at that time hard video copies. Yeah. <laughs> right? That was the guy we were then dealing with out of the Middle East who had no clue what we we're doing. And until then, basically everyone just gave up. And I finally started talking to the guys in the US. And then, okay, you know what? We'll find a way to do it. We, you know, we somewhat believe your story, Marcus. So we took that product from zero yeah. to the number one rated TV program overnight. In what countries? In Malaysia. In Malaysia. So, wow. And, the, and so what's the, that what? first. What's the, what's, the, what's the size of Malaysia? So we have about, at that time, maybe 25 million people. We had 3 million people watching this every week. Wow. Every week. Fantastic. With, a, with, a, with, a, with, a, with not of their top product. We had, I think, Superstars, which was a highlight show. Yeah. So but because we promoted the way we promoted it, the way, of course, the cigarette boys at that time were throwing money at yeah. it, you know, it just went through the roof. So that got everyone's attention. You know, that is really where WWE went, okay, how, how did you do that? Yeah. And can we do that in another country yeah. too? Which yeah. we then did. So you did it for you did it for 13 shows in Malaysia. You got yeah. them on board, the WWE on board to say, believe in us. You proved yeah. them. And then they said, right, let's yeah. get you on board big time and let's make it bigger. Correct. Fantastic. Yeah. Basically, they had they had a deal with, at that time with one of the regional platforms here. I think they were called Star Sports uh, at that time yeah. for, I guess, a couple hundred thousand dollars and they basically ask us you know what do you think should be the value for if if we and when renewal and, and they had all the good product right the, the raw and smackdown etc and i came up with a number which was probably about 
uh, three, four times larger than what they were paying. Yeah. So of course they go back to to Star Sports and they Sports were telling me, "You guys are nuts. We're never ever going to pay this." Yeah. So they came back to me and said, "Marcus Aquell, they're not going to pay for this. Do you really believe you can pull this off?" Yeah. And I said, "And so, so give us a business plan or give us some numbers which we forecasted, um, For- which I thought was forecast. aggressive." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> ah, well, we did a bit more homework on it. It wasn't just completely plucked out of the air. But the fun part was that we blitzed that forecast with the first deal. Wow. Have some of that. <laughs> Love it. So, yeah, exactly. So our first deal was actually in Japan where no one believed we could do a deal. Everyone was telling us, be careful. It's, you know, that, you know, wrestling is is, handled, is is managed by the Yakuza. You guys are going to get killed. <laughs> and, and, and literally, when we were walking around, it, it was like the blind leading the blind. <laughs> <laughs> and even, so, even I, went, we I went to the Japan World Cup and literally... No one speaks English, yeah, exactly. so I don't know how you managed yeah, to so, cut that deal. Fair play to you. Well, yeah, no, it was it was a good one. So uh, you know, in Japan, actually, they don't have street addresses, right? So it's not like yeah. in a normal country. You go, okay, go to this office here, and here's the address. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, exist. Yeah. They just have these suburbs or or whatever these regions. So you get always <laughs> dropped off, and then you go, and hey, what am I going to know? <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, it was. It was, you know, it was, it was some crazy stuff we did, um, but we always found a way. And whether that was the Japan, actually, our large single largest deal we ever did was in India. Okay. Uh, India was the, the largest deal we ever cut. And How many uh, people? 1.3 billion or something? Yeah, a little bit like that. And how many um, people in Japan? So Japan has 100 and something million, 110 million. Is that right? right so uh, so India was an, is another great story with WWE, um, which also links a bit to the, to the world of... Uh, of the event side again back there right so we did our first deal with a new broadcaster in india um chris uh, chris uh, mcdonald is the gentleman name who, who was started the company that called 10 sports or touch tv so chris uh, was an american uh running the show there and, and of course he knew wwe and he knew the power of it and and wwe in japan in india till today is hugely popular it's the only product which comes anywhere near tv ratings to cricket, cricket. wow um, and it's because WWE is consistent right every week it just shows up you know um, so he, he knew that, or at least had the hint of it, I guess. And, and he took the rides for it, uh, you know, in a, in a very large deal already when the first one we did and the last one we still did was about a 50 million us dollar deal, mm. uh, for that country about, whew, I think it was a four or five year deal. So let's say 10 so plus million. So a just year, to right? break that down. So if you cut a deal with someone in India, is that just broadcasting from the U S the WWE when they're doing their wrestling in the U S that people in India can watch it on telly? Correct. Yeah, that was it. It's not bringing any of the wrestlers to India. No. Correct. Okay. And is that the same yeah. and, with Japan? But, but, and is that the same with Malaysia? Yeah, it was the same with everywhere. All we did at the end of the day, we're just initially we were the TV agent, right? Our job was go broker these deals. Yeah. Now, what we then figured out very quickly is that to increase the value of these games, of these deals, you know, not just you go in there and you do a little five percent, ten percent renewal as it used to be in the yeah. old days. Yeah to really pump those numbers up. And that's how it exploded in India is you have to bring people in, yeah. meaning you have to get them to touch the product, yeah. right? And that's, of course, later when we talk about how the Premier League does that here with, with the teams coming. So we figured, okay, guys, we need to bring a tour here. So WWE at that time had not toured Asia for probably more than a decade. So wow. it wasn't like, yeah, we really want to come to Asia. They were making a lot of money in the US at that time. It was a very hot market. So, you know, moving a whole talent out and doing it here it literally cost the money than it would yeah. add money right yeah. so it wasn't the thing so anyway initially we managed to at least get some talent out right so we had a couple of the the bigger names or retired names coming here Hulk and Hogan. a bunch of 
we didn't have Hulk Hogan, but we had uh, um, blanking out on the name at the moment. But uh, anyway, we had Big Show. Uh, we had uh, you know a few other guys, so you know which were good stars, and, and we toured them around, uh, and that helped every time we brought them in. Yeah. And they then we of course went and meet with the broadcasters. We met with other folks. We got tons of publicity. You know, yeah. front pages. You know, if a guy like Big Show arrives, he's huge. You know, and he dra- you drag him around India. I mean, that you you, you can't yeah, miss the guy, absolutely. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we took him to the you know to the Broadcasting, we took him to all place. So that already worked well. And but to me, it was also clear, but untested or unproven to some degree, of yeah. course, that if we bring tours, it could get even much bigger, which we then eventually were able to convince WWE finally in 2001. They were finally going, okay, fine, we're going to do a tour in 2008, uh, 2002 uh, in March, right? It was the first when it was. Fortunately, if you remember, uh, 9 11 happened, you know, obviously in the, in the later part of 2001. So now the whole of the U.S. is obviously freaked out, shocked, uh, and the whole world is in some degree. And so all of a sudden traveling was a bit like now. It's like, oh, we don't want to get on planes or, you know, we don't, we don't feel we're safe and God knows what, right? So, so we had lined up the tour was Tokyo, Singapore, and Malaysia, four days back to back. We had a first night in Tokyo. We got on the plane the next morning. Played that night, next day over to Malaysia. So we were in four days because they had to go back to the U.S. for for yeah. their TV shoots, yeah. right? So they, that was the challenge. Yeah. You couldn't still at that time produce a TV event in Asia. So these were what they call house shows where there would no be no television, but you had you know full house arena. Anyway, I mean you know I can t- we can talk a whole whole podcast just on that tour alone. But uh, the shorter version of it was we had the Rock in it, which at that time was of course the biggest star WWE had. Um, and he was also promoting uh, Scorpion King, so it was his first movie. Was just had just come out, um, so it was you know huge, of course, on, on so many levels. And here again, it's just so great stories, right? Our broadcaster in in Japan said, "Look, if you guys sell four or five thousand tickets, you're gonna be happy." Mm. And I'm like, "No, no, no, we're gonna sell this out." Yeah, and we did. What was we the capacity? Up the, we filled up Yokohama St- Arena with about, I think, 15,000 people okay. or whatever. It's whatever the capacity was yeah. at that time. Yeah. Um, and we were able to get in there. So it was sold out. We had a line around the venue, yeah, people lining up brilliant. to buy merchandise. We sold probably almost three or $400,000 worth of merchandise yeah. outside the stadium. Yeah. People lining up wow. for two hours to get a bloody Just for the rock. I mean, it was on, well, for everyone, basically, yeah. whatever, you know, whatever you could basically get your hands on yeah. it. So, you know, incredible experience, uh, you know, crazy stuff happening uh, with, with me and The Rock. <laughs> Interesting story there. You know, I had kind How of... How big is he? He was... How he big is, is he? Well, he's, he's large in, uh, in many ways. He's yeah. large in, in, in terms of size. He's large in terms of his aura is just unbelievable. Yeah. Actually, really, he really is nice. He's a very gentle, gentle giant, yeah, which most of the WWE guys are, actually. You yeah. know, there's a couple of guys you always get have a little ego, but a uh, majority of them are really good guys, awesome. right? But here's a funny little story with him. So he was the one of the main reasons WWE didn't want to come. He wasn't comfortable traveling. So in one of those Nate Light, Nate Light phone calls with, with the WWE executives, I sort of alluded to that he may be a bit of a, I don't know, uh, maybe I'm sure what use they were, use a word I use, chicken or whatever. Why wouldn't he want to come, right? I said, Tokyo is safer you did, than you New York. Him, you didn't tell him that, did you? He's a chicken. No, well, I didn't say that to him, to him. but <laughs> the message got to him. The message got to him somehow. I have no idea how, right? So all of a sudden, he arrives, so, you know, he comes in, he's on the, he's in the plane. I didn't see him when he comes out of the plane. He gets to back to the hotel and I get in the elevator and he comes out, right? And I'm, of course, introduced myself. Hey, I'm Marcus Lure. I'm the promoter of the tour. And he goes, Marcus Lure, 
I've been looking for you, I swear, with the eyebrow going up, the whole thing. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to get the elbow now. It's, or I don't know. Of course, I have no idea what did I do, right? But obviously, he didn't look very happy, right? So he kind of said, well, I kind of heard what you said about me. And I'm like, what did I say? Oh, I said, oh shit. <laughs> right. So, of course, I kind of explained it. I said, look, I just really wanted the guys to come. We've done all this work here. We had all these fans lining up. We had sold tickets, and it was just you know, I just had to find a way to get you guys over the line there and, and, and apologize, whatever I might've said, uh, which came across the wrong way. So yeah. anyway, he, he said, hey, never mind. Um, anyway, so by the end of the tour, we had a, a great relationship. He loved what we put together. You know, he wrote us, you know, nice personal notes and, and just, you know, had a fantastic time. Every stadium was sold out to the roof. The fans adored him. And I mean, he is, oh, yeah. a, he is a rock star, as, as they say. Absolutely. So that was, so that was your bulk of your business, cutting that deal very early, bringing them on board, using your initiative, seeing an opportunity, being a good middleman, putting America in contact with the Asian world, getting a piece of yep. the broadcast broadcast rights and getting your percentages. How long was the longest deal you cut for? Yeah, no, it was, uh, our largest was five years, I think. That was the one in India. Uh, majority were probably at least three years, three, yeah. uh, if not longer. So uh, now, you know how it is. Initially, when when broadcasters uh, sort of test a the product, they, they're happy to, to maybe do something shorter or don't want to risk. Yeah. Uh, once they realize, okay, I better hang on to this thing. Yeah. Then, of course, they want to be there longer, right? I mean, I you know, when we were... When we were doing a deal in Korea, I had the broadcast executive camping downstairs in my hotel yeah. trying to Get see me because they knew they this was so hot right now. So during our time, we, we created a massive bus um, across the region. We, we created these uh, these major events. And then, of course, they hear the stories, right? One broadcaster talks to the other at Sportel yeah. or whatever. And they go, you know, wow, WWE this, WWE that. And so it's just, you know, one thing led to the other. So at the end of the day, we worked ourselves a job. I mean, that's the sort of not so fun part to it as as what happens to agencies. Yeah. We were making we were making WWE so much money. And, of course, on the back of it, we were making a lot of money. They went, you know what? We can use that money to set up our own offices yeah. and, and do this, which is what they ended up doing at yeah. the end of the day. And what and what year did what year did that fizzle out for you personally? Yeah, so um so we the the deal stopped, I think, in 2007-8. Um, but we were still getting paid for another five years because as I said, certain deals were running much beyond that, right? Mm. So it was a good way. For both sides, I think, you know, we still made a lot of money um, and we had a bit of a, you know, fallback position, like when you get relegated from the Premier League. We had a little parachute <laughs> payment there. Um, and so that that worked well for us, I think, as an agency. It allowed us to, you know, we Jake a bit. And of course, broadcast was our thing. We knew how to sell at that yeah, time. We yeah. had the relationship. So we sold everything else, South American football, uh, U.S. Open tennis and God knows what badminton wow. and table tennis. Such, so we were, you know, such opportunities, Marcus, such yep. big opportunities in the Asian market for someone like yourself to go in there and go, I've got the world at my feet here. Everyone's doing it in Europe. Now I'm going to be doing it in Asia, seeing what sports I can bring into these different countries. It was fun. Yeah, I bet it was. I bet it was. <laughs> Have you found that you've noticed since like 2008 when that dried up the WWE and the time's going on? Obviously, there's going to be more and more competition competing with you in this marketplace now. What was your next step? What did you do in 2008? I need to find a new sport or I need to find a new mm. opportunity in these different countries. What was your next move? The way I call it, I call it TSA 1.0 and now we're TSA 5.0, 5, 5 right? Yeah. So 23 years, we have different segments of this company. Um, and so WWE was really our 1.0 for sure. You know, uh, It was an amazing ride we were on there. 
Um, and so what we then pivoted into was really very aggressively uh, marketing uh, additional media rights, right? We just went after everyone, right? If you go to someone saying, I've just made WWE $150 million, would you like me to do something like yeah. this too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you have a reasonably convincing argument, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And so, um, so we ended up with that. And, and for a while, we had a very strong uh, record sport portfolio, as I said, tennis and badminton and quick, uh, squash and table tennis, you name it. So that was sort of... Uh, a big part of it. But what we were also doing at the time is we were going broader, right? We, we, I never wanted to be just a media agency. In hindsight, I probably should have done that. It would have made me probably a lot more money. Um, you know, like some of my colleagues who were just focused on selling TV rights, but uh, it, it was boring to be honest. Yeah. I, 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 you know, if you figure out how to sell one product, it's yeah. not that hard to sell the next. And so it wasn't really what got me excited. Right. So you know, so we started dabbling in, and dabbling is maybe the wrong word, but, you know, we started investing in, in new things. Um, and that was events. In some cases, it was uh, trying to create our own IP. Uh, in others, it was maybe, uh, yeah, building up the whole sponsorship division. So, again, once you deal with all these rights holders yeah. um, or IP owners globally to yeah. say, hey, guys, I've just made you a bunch of money in, in, in TV. Uh, how about I sell some sponsorship for you? Yeah. Um, you know, again, not a very difficult conversation, yeah. right? So, somewhat the business evolved always on the back of the relationships we had right and we had we actually at one point in time we had the the national team rights the tv rights for the italian football team and the spanish team when they were world champion and euro champion right so again great teams Perfect. big names yeah. um and so we were selling their tv rights that was still when it was you know lose each federation had their own rights rather than how it's now um and so yeah so you know so that we then also say hey how about well, why don't we do some licensing deal with the, you want to be associated with a world champion or the European champion and stuff like that? Of course, you know, companies always have that interest, right? So, you know, I'm, a, I'm the official partner to the Italian football team in Thailand, in China, in wherever, you know, or in maybe in the region, right? So it's not a global deal necessarily, yeah. but I'm now allowed to say, you know, I'm the official telco of the world champion in Malaysia. Okay. Right? Something like that. So or, you would get a sponsor to come in as the official sponsor purely for that country. Correct. Wow. Yeah. So we like did, it. you know, I mean, give you a real example. We here in Thailand, we had a company called Big Cola. Big Cola was a, uh, let's say, th th second tier cola brand, right? Competing with Coca-Cola and, and Pepsi in the market here, but on a sort of lower level. So we, we partnered with them uh, or we put them together with the England FA during the 2010 World Cup yep. um, at that time. Um, they so it was a really cool deal. There was a lot of branding of the of the national logo, a couple of player images on the on the on the bottles and the cans, etc. And we grew their market share by seven percent with mm. that one campaign. Mm, lovely. Each each percent point is sort of twenty million US yeah. dollars worth in yeah. this country here. Yeah. Wow. So so that again, you know, and the the whole deal maybe cost less than a million dollars to yeah. do yeah. for them, right? So wow. it was very very profitable for them, yeah. and of course it made us look pretty good too. Right? And what percentages percentages were you working on, and say that a million pound deal? Yeah, so we would have paid. I have to admit, I don't recall this one. Um, you know, but normally you at this time at that time you were still getting about twenty percent commission on 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 your sponsorship deals. It's lesser now. Um, it also depends, of course, the size of the deal. You still probably get 
little larger percentages when you when you deal with this sort of dollar, million dollar size. If you go to Man United and you're trying to give a, make them five million dollars, they'll give you less than ten percent now. Yeah. So uh, again, the nar- the margins and the and the numbers have definitely shrunk over the years. Did you ever take the risk yourself, where you didn't work on a percentage? You said, you know what, I'll do this deal. I'll give you a million pound up front and let me go and sell it, and you can go and sell it to other sponsors for one point five, two million, two point five, etc. Less in the sponsorship space, but yes, big time in the TV space. So the the the, the sort of nice, let's call it commission-driven deals disappeared in the TV world very early. So WWE was really probably one of our few where we were that way. Um, the, the in the in the TV world, the, the the IP owners they like guarantees. They go and pay me guarantee, put as much money on the table as you think as you can afford, and then you make your money yeah. over and above. So yeah. yes, in the TV world, we constantly did this and we got it right you know most most of the time and we got it wrong a few times where we burned nice nice holes yeah 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 perfect let's let's move on to a bit of english football or liverpool or man united you ever been involved in any 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 deals with those boys yeah again we've worked with uh, most of them which you just mentioned uh, many of them were more tv as tv television and or sponsorship related so we represented barcelona's and real madrid's tv rights we've done licensing and sponsorship to man united liverpool uh Real Madrid again uh, Barcelona as well so um now in terms of bring the event side of the business we did something the biggest one we probably did um in the world of football was uh, was Bayern Munich uh we brought them to China um in 2012 for a tour against Wolfsburg so it was the first time ever that you had two German yeah. teams playing in China it was an official Bundesliga match it was a postseason match uh, but again, it normally in the old days, it was always wherever it comes in, you play the local team, right? Wherever is the, the yeah. local team on the from that country or city, you know, whether it's in a country like Malaysia, you would play the national team. If you go to a city like China, of course, you would play maybe the, the local club team there, right? So that was the, the standard order, which we kind of broke here in a sense. And, and now you see, of course, you have the International Champions uh, Trophy, which is always the big teams playing each other yeah. around the world. Right? And so by that time, that wasn't as common yet. So we did this. We had Volkswagen as the big sponsor. Volkswagen China put a huge amount of money behind it. They, of course, are the sponsor of Wolfsburg and a sponsor of Bayern. So you can see yeah. <laughs> with the connection there already. Um, so, yeah, it was very successful. We pulled, it, pulled that off um, in 2012. Um, we had looked at these tours over the years many times. Um, we've yep. had and put in bits again where, yes, you would say, I guarantee you X millions of dollars uh, to come here. Again, on the back of it, doing your math on how many tickets you would sell, how many sponsors you would have to sell, and maybe some TV money if it was still available, um, and et cetera. Right? And interesting enough, we never won any. Um, we either were outbidded by someone else who was more aggressive um, and or we just didn't feel it was worth it, mm. um, you know. Again, because like you as we like you mentioned earlier already, it's a one-off thing, right? Yeah. You have you either make money with at that event, you have a great day, and you walk out fantastic, or you just bought yourself a very expensive ticket to watch a game. Yeah, 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 yeah. So give me an example. Someone like Liverpool going to I don't know China on a pre-season. How would that mm. look for the Liverpool team? They must be saying, right, you pay us. 10 mil, we'll come there for three games and then we'll leave. Whoever pays right. that money, is that, a, is that a wonderful knock-on effect for the local community, for the city, for the country when that club leaves? Or is it sort of a smash and grab? Um, I mean, look, I think, again, to be fair to the teams, there is both of it, right? On one side, if someone is willing to give you that much money, why would you not grab it, right? I mean, it'd be stupid not to do it, right? Yeah. So you can't blame them that they do it. 
Um, you know, and of course, at the same time that they come there and have an opportunity to connect with the fans and, and you know, touch and feel and do all the stuff they should be doing makes complete sense as well. And, and a bit like my WWE story of that, that drives TV broadcaster engagement and as well as stuff. Clearly, it's interesting for the teams as well, right? Because they get a large, of course, of the revenue which is generated out of these markets, right? So, so I think that that's a self-fulfilling prophecy which works uh, for sure. As and and the Premier League has done a much better job than any other league in the world um, in Asia in this case, right? The NBA has done a great job with a similar way in China, but if you take the Bundesliga or even the Italians or others, um, they've never really matched that, right? So the Premier League teams have been doing it for decades. Um, now, the numbers have gone up. Absolutely. The number you threw out for three matches in China isn't far off from what probably someone could potentially pay. Um, now, what does it do for the local hosts? The team is clear. Made some decent money. You take your stars there. The fans have a chance to see them watching and, and everyone walks away uh, and they walk away fairly happy there. What does it do for the local guy? Well, if you make money on the event, fantastic. Right? You know, Then like any other promoter, you go, that was a good day. Now, if you are a city who maybe sponsors it or a country even sponsoring it, okay, you're, what you're looking for, of course, is that global exposure, you know, putting yourself on the radar. Um, and if you're a smaller city or yeah, a second tier city in China, which most people wouldn't have heard of or you could barely pronounce, then, uh, you know, that's a good thing, right? That gets you a bit on the map. Everyone knows Beijing and Shanghai, but, you know, do you know the next guys? Yeah. Well, probably not. So I think that's what you saw happening is that, you know, these cities obviously start to realize, hey, you know, there's a way to make noise and, and to drop a couple of million dollars in a larger budget from the city. So what? Yeah. Right. Um, you know, we might never make, you know, make the money back on the event itself because, you know, we're going to give half the tickets away for free or whatever other ways um, that wasn't really that important. Right. So so that's I think what I saw is that. You know, sometimes you saw offers which were coming in, which just didn't make commercial sense, right? And that's why we walked away from it so yeah. many times uh, when we tried it, because there was always maybe some other logic or someone had mon different money, which we couldn't get to. Yeah. Right? And then, you know, fair enough. I say, okay, fine. Look, if, if you get another million dollar from this guy, I can't find that Take million it. dollars. Yeah. I know it's it's not there, yeah. right? At least in my calculation. So, you know, but also loop it back into this year. It's a funny little story that. So we were, without naming who it is, uh, we were working with one of the big teams. Um, in what country? From the UK, in your country. North, north of uh, England or London? <laughs> I, I, I won't go that, but they're red. <laughs> it narrows it down a little bit, uh, you know, but so, uh, I won't go there. But anyway, so we were talking to them, uh, bringing them into, into Thailand this year. Um, and uh, they didn't want to come initially because the coach didn't want to travel and all that sort of some stuff. And so it was really ended up coming to the point where we said, okay, what would it take? What's the number which could make this move, yeah. right? Um, and again, this was government money here. Thailand was very keen uh, to put a big number on the table to, uh, you know, to promote the country. And, and so this was, you know, COVID hadn't really kicked off yet. I think China was already a bit, you know, in trouble, but the rest of the world had clearly not caught on to it yet. And so there was still this hope that, hey, you could do these sort of things. Right? So we got in there. Um, and ended up with a very large number for one match. It would have been sort of in and out, you know, sort of come in, fly the night in before one day training, next day match, and then back in wow. a sense, right? For wow. a large sum. How much? Which again, the yeah, I can't I can't mention the give number, me, but me, uh, me, it was large. Give me a ballpark. Ten million? 
it was uh, eight eight uh, eight dollar uh, eight, eight figures. So uh, so it was a very large amount, and uh, and so on the back of it, you know, there was it was fun. You know, we everyone had a obviously oh, so it happened very hard on it. It happened. No, it didn't happen. Oh, it didn't so happen. and I said it was fun more like uh, you know it, we were we were really getting there until of course COVID you know got yeah. completely in the way, and it was really clear that impossible to get him here never mind how large the yeah. money was or, or anything was happening right so so no it's on hold of course and then you know let's see where where it goes at, at the usual but uh yeah i mean so those things do happen and and this is as most as recent as as you can think of where you know there was a government there was someone ready to write a very large check because they were looking for that kind of push and to promote something and um, that doesn't happen all the time, right? No. So those are more one-off, I guess, uh, than, than more regular occurrences. Mm. Fair play. Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, mate. Thank you very much for your honesty. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it, listening to that whole world that the majority of people in this country won't know about. Um, it's been very refreshing for just to hear everything you're saying. Thanks for having me on, and uh, maybe we'll do it the other way around next time Abs- on mine. Absolutely. You're a gentleman, <laughs> Marcus. Thoroughly enjoyed it, buddy. Stay Respect. safe. Take care, mate. Cheers. Cheers.